Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Priest of Copper Beach Financial Group. John and Michael, how are you today? Eric, are doing great. How are you, sir? Doing fantastic. Guys, I know that we have two guests on the show today. You, you brought two people on. Uh, why don't you introduce them to the audience? Well, sure. We have uh, Stephen Cantor and Michael Brown from S2K today. All right. What are you guys talking about? Well, gentlemen, th- first off, thank you for uh, being a part of today's podcast. Uh, we, I've actually been looking forward to this for a while. And, and today, we're really going to cover all things real estate. Uh, these two gentlemen, and I'll let them introduce themselves and give a little bit of their, their history and their background. But uh, they have uh, a, a huge and wide breadth of knowledge in this space. It's something that, that, like I said, we've been looking forward to for a while. It's a topic that comes up pretty much every client meeting almost with our clients in terms of where things stand with the real estate market. And we're getting to uh, maybe some specific strategies on a future podcast, but uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. So Michael, Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Uh, Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we won't disappoint. Not you guys. <laughs> yeah. If you ask me one question, it could take the whole podcast. So <laughs> we'll try to ring you in. We'll uh, we'll be okay there. I think. Yeah. So why, why don't you gentlemen uh, briefly start off and give us a little bit of uh, your background and your company and and what you guys do? So sure. Thanks. Thank once again. Thanks for having us. And I'll try to do both. So this is Steve Cantor. I spent uh, thirty five years on Wall Street, and for a guy who's forty five, that's not so bad. <laughs> Um, um, thank God there's no pictures today. You can't see me. Uh, I, I, I did everything from real estate to commercial mortgages, to residential mortgages, to corporate credit, uh, to running securities at a major firm on wall street, a fun career, um, on wall street. And it, and it it really kind of watched wall street change from being a small place, uh, to a very large place in in terms of the global economy. I then started a company called S2K about six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, time flies. I, I can't even remember when I started. And I, I really started to, to, to do brand content and talent. Um, I'm a big macro player. I don't really think I'm that smart. So if I get the macro trend just right, I feel like I can, I can just do so much, so much damage. And so my macro trend when I started S2K was brand content and talent. And I helped start a company called Avion Tequila. And I did a, de- a deal with a guy named Simon Fuller from American Idol. And that went along just fine. And then someone asked me to take a look at uh, uh, the, the product, the real estate product that was being sold to the independent financial advisors. And uh, after spending about six months looking into it, uh, my, my conclusion was that I really wanted to create product that really looked more like Wall Street. And what I meant by that was really very simple. I wanted product that had great sponsors with great track records. And I wanted product that had an alignment of interest. And I wanted product that had transparency. And I felt if I could create that, I could become hopefully the Merrill Lynch of the Morgan Stanley for the independent financial advisors. And that's how S2K got started. Wonderful. That's great. Mr. Brown, give us a little bit of your background. So Steve, Steve's the macro player. Maybe my job is often has been to live in the weeds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started my career only 20 years ago, which is pretty good for, uh, I, I'm only 25. So we, we both started really young. <laughs> <laughs> skilled you guys are. What skills yeah. you have. Um, 
But I started my career at a place called Fitch Ratings, which is a rating agency some people may have heard of, may not have heard of, but they probably have heard of Moody's and S&P, so a competitor in that space. And I started as a CMBS analyst, which is commercial mortgage-backed securities. So that's the whole bond industry behind tremendous amount of the uh, commercial real estate lending in this country, uh, which was a great place to start analyzing uh, loans and portfolios of loans and, and risk. Our clients were the banks and the natural next step from that place was to go work for one of our clients. So I started working at Credit Suisse. That's where I met Steve. Steve was the global head of real estate at the time. And I was uh, sitting in the cube. So there was only a few thousand people between the two of us in the org chart. <laughs> but that was a great time to be at, you know, in that business and certainly at that shop, which was around say 2004. And <clears throat> the next several years were as good as it got. And then kind of we went off the cliff and the great recession hit. And we all had a lot of challenges to face, but we worked through them. And after Credit Suisse, I left with a you know, group of the of, of core people from our team, including Steve. We went to Cantor Fitzgerald and started an entire commercial real estate uh, lending platform. We had a bunch of equity strategies, and I was there for quite a while. And then Steve and I linked back up here at S2K, and we're both uh, pretty active on on the debt and equity side of the commercial real estate across the country across various asset classes right now. So look, really excited to be here today to talk to you guys. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I'll jump in here. I don't know who's going to do this uh, intro on real estate markets today. I'll let you guys decide that. Uh, we have a lot of our clients that are asking us questions about real estate in general, you know, 1031 <laughs> exchange options, or should I buy real estate in my portfolio? If I if I do, what type should I buy? What's available? What's the what's how, how should I invest into it? So that we have a lot of questions about real estate. So I thought we'd start with talk a little about the real estate market we we're currently in. I know everyone's houses have gone through the roof, and commercial real estate's made a big change after the pandemic. So you want to walk through what real estate is today, and we'll get focused on maybe some specifics. Yeah, sure. So I get the, the job of talking about the, the general and I leave the specifics to Michael. So I think that's such a broad question. It's like, uh, I think we have a, a tendency in life to, to categorize stuff, right? And I, and I think that's, it's hard because real estate's just so much more. Are, are we talking about retail? Are we talking about uh, uh, apartments? Are we talking about hotels? They're all real estate. Yeah. Are we talking about housing? And so each of those sectors has their own macro issues, problems, and trends that it deals with. So if you said to me about the housing market, I'd say, tell me the marketplace, and by, not only that, but markets, each market's different within, within, within that broad spectrum of what that sure. is. So I always say, be more specific, right? So what I try to do is hit the check boxes, right? So tell me <clears throat> what type of real estate and what the macro trends of that type of real estate is, and then tell me where it is. And, and then if you really want to dig into the weeds, tell me the sub-market within the sub-market of the sub-market where that piece of asset is. The great part about real estate and the reason you need real estate professionals is it's such a specific item. <clears throat> so that's the first part. How you play that is even completely different, right? Do you play with a public REIT? Do you buy a partnership? Do you a tax play in a 1031 exchange? Do you do opportunity zones? Is it, you know, there's so many things that come up with what the what you're buying within that real estate. So I think the key is to, to understand 
what you're trying to accomplish. What am I looking for? Am I looking for growth? Am I looking to take a little more risk? Do I want a lot higher return? How are interest rates going to affect this? And, and then how do I want to play it? You know, who, who I want, and who do I want to play it with? Because the hard part about real estate, at the end of the day, it is an illiquid asset. You can buy it liquid if you want to buy a REIT, but at the end of the day, most real estate is an illiquid asset. So I think when you start this discussion, it really is getting into the weed. What do you like? What don't you like? What should I look at? What shouldn't I look at? So I, I, don't, I don't think I answered the question, but it's the, way, it's the way I look at real estate. So when somebody walks in my office, I'm like, okay, what do you got? Where is it? What are the trends there? What are the local trends? What could go wrong? What could go right? And by the way, the last part is how is it financed? You could take two buildings on this, uh, the exact building, same tenants. One can have 80% debt. One can have 20% debt. One could go bankrupt. One could be just fine. So I think it's, it's, it's all those things that go into the decision, should I or should I not buy real estate and should I buy it now? And Steve, that day, welcome to my world. <laughs> That's why our clients are like, what do I do? How do you approach real estate? So they're as confused as, as many on what they should buy in a portfolio. So maybe we get real specific here. Uh, a lot of our clients really don't need income per se. They like the growth of real estate. Uh, they're generational thinkers. Uh, they usually have real estate owned in their trusts. So if you, if you focused on, on long-term real estate, where would you think the market is today for that future growth uh, in these families that we work with? So here, that's a great question. Here's the thing. Today, I think cap rates are, you know, you can buy, you're buying apartments, for example, at a 3% cap rate for a B-plus apartment, A-minus. You want to where, explain where, cap rates, Steve? Ah, uh, yeah. Is a cap rate is the, is, the, is the inverse of a multiple. So if I bought it at, at four times cap rate, it means I paid 25 times the cash flow that's on that property today. 100 okay. divided by 425. So you're going to pay 25 times that cash flow. Theoretically, if the cash flow never moved anywhere, it would take you 25 years to recover your money. Exactly. So that's a simple way of looking at it. When I look at that, I'm like, where can that? And, and by the way, he, we were going to eventually get into this question. And I think you can't avoid this question because real estate uses debt to help finance acquisitions or whatever it does. Interest rates might be the biggest controller of what goes on other than what happens at the property level. Yes. And I've been wrong about interest rates now for five years. So if you get banking on, on my ability to, to guess interest rates, you should hang up right now and never talk to me. <laughs> I think a lot of people have been wrong about interest rates. <laughs> right. I don't understand it. I truly don't understand where the world is going. We know there's inflation. I don't understand why interest rates have gone up. I get why. I think they've been kept down. But at the end of the day, if you believe what you read now, people would tell you interest rates are going up. So if interest rate goes up, the value of existing real estate goes down. And in a high interest rate, so I would tell you that why buy, a, in my mind, close to a top of a market? I can't tell you how long the top of the market could last. But if you're buying it through four caps, five caps, three caps, it doesn't have a lot of room to go. It can only go to zero, right? Now would be the time in my mind that you're supposed to look for development. So you're going to take a little more risk on development. But at the end of the day, you should, on a development project, you should try to get a return of not 3%. You should try to get a return on the same asset class of 15%, 20%, 12%. So 
if you can play the right markets and the right types of real estate, I'm not a big player right now of trying other than certain specific, you know, hopefully areas that we can find. I'm not a big player of owning the equity of a lot of the, of a lot of the assets out there, which are, I think maybe I maybe overpriced right now, to be quite honest. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and if you look at the sectors of real estate, a lot of our clients uh, look at, for example, we have clients that are on the West Coast and they see housing booms in the West Coast. I mean, developers are building houses in every corner and they're going for skyrocketing prices. So, so when you look at certain sectors and, and housing at this point, it seems to be a, a real big growth strategy long-term, especially, again, depending on what area you're looking at. So to your point earlier, the, the sector or the marketplace where that, that, that housing is being built is a, is a key factor. Am, am I correct in that? Yeah. Yes. But I, I love that you brought that up. Because even on a big macro trend, I love housing, and, right? I like, I really like something that it has a, has a roof over your head. Because think about it. What is the biggest thing that has displaced most businesses in America today? It's the internet. The internet can't displace a roof over your head to sleep. So when I look, I go, people need to sleep. They need a roof, right? They might sleep in a home. They might sleep in that. They might own the home or rent that home. They might sleep in a nursing home. They might sleep in a hotel. They might sleep in a trailer park. But what do those have in common? They have a roof over people's heads. And so I, if you ask me my macro trend, I believe in housing because I, I, I just don't see the internet destroying that business. And so I'm a big housing guy now. You got to ask the next 10 questions after that. Why, how, what, where, when, and all that. But at least from a macro play, I think housing is a place that I like. And some, I'll jump in for a second. Something that we look at, as I mentioned before, is both real estate from a, through an equity lens and a debt lens. And an investor and your clients may have the opportunity to invest in different parts of the capital stack. So just saying, I want to invest in real estate is a simple statement. It's what part, what, what exposure, what risk exposure am I interested in taking? And I think what we're seeing in our lending business right now in the housing space specifically, which is by far the most active sector in lending, multifamily um, and apartment lending, is that the debt side of the trade right now may be the smarter play. Certainly the more risk adverse play versus being in the equity, but you might make the argument right now that is actually the smarter play, all things considered. You have a growing population, right? They had baby boomers and the baby boomers then had kids. And then the kids are having kids and maybe even their kids are having kids. You just have more and more and more population. You have inflation, which we referenced quickly earlier. We have material prices going up. So while we very much are bullish on the development side of housing right now. Um, on the existing housing stock, the challenge is when you build a new property, you need to charge a price either in the price you sell it for or the price you rent it for if you're an apartment to sort of make your numbers work based on how much it costs to build. So what ends up happening is the existing housing stock, which is aging, also needs to be addressed. So we're seeing a tremendous amount of activity on uh, what we call value-add acquisitions, where someone's buying a 1985 apartment building and then doing a very substantial renovation to make it as good as it can be for its bones, because a lot of that housing stock has just been aged and now it's insulated because that price you can buy that type of housing for 
is far more inexpensive than building new. And while you might not be able to rent it for the same price as new, you still can get a good price for it. So we're seeing a tremendous amount of activity in the debt space from our perspective in value-add multifamily. And then we're seeing a lot of interesting opportunities on the development space, whether it is within some tax play like an opportunity zone or DST or just a, you know, a straight equity play. So the multifamily space is the most prolific in this country. Obviously, housing is a major you know, driver of the economy, but the United States has a severe housing, affordable housing shortage. And this isn't affordable like some program that the government gives out. They actually, Fannie and Freddie use the term lowercase a, affordable. This is naturally affordable housing that exists in every and any town USA. And I think to Steve's point about cap rates being very low, which means the returns are very low in, in, in multifamily and apartment uh, buying, you can get some value by buying something a little bit older, but something a little bit older also needs a little more of an active business plan attached to it, not just right. hold it and clip coupons, so to speak. So we're seeing a lot of activity on all sort of vintages of, of housing. And then single family rentals is, is a ma- massive trend in this country where companies are buying huge portfolios of, of homes and renting them out kind of like apartments. So I think people have woken up over the last few years to realize that the demand for housing far outweighs the available housing stock in this country. So for your clients, I think housing always should have been and still remains a very interesting place to deploy their capital, but that doesn't make it an automatic investment. Every deal has its own story and its own market and its own sort of dynamics. So just because it's housing doesn't mean it's automatically good to be in the equity. And therefore, you might also consider the debt side of the trade for investing in lenders that are uh, deploying their capital in that capacity. That was really in-depth. I guess you could see why we had these two gentlemen on, because I think their knowledge is just it's very extensive and, and, and detailed. Uh, gentlemen, I, I was interested in, and I think it was, as Stephen, you brought up uh, the retail space. That was always something that I'm uh, interested in and you know, and, and what, where you see that going, uh, you know, your, your shopping malls down the street. I know that that has historically been a, a decent play for some real estate investors. I'm interested to hear your opinions on where the outlook might be for that sector. Once again, I, I always start this, but tell me the market, tell me where you are, give me the, the macro trends of that market, the, 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 the regular trends of that market. But here's what I'd say about retail in general. I like local shopping centers, which have grocery anchors, you know, food, all the stuff you need to live there. I like that. It's usually in a community, people go there. It, it might be changing a little, but it's still there. I think even there, retail is changing in terms of, of shopping centers. I thought, you know, I think, you know, when you look at Whole Foods, for example, and they're, you know, are they, do, do, do they care whether you go in or you just order online and they deliver it to you? So a lot of these, a lot of these retail centers have really become last smile in but to get stuff from that you order online. And I think that's been a very big change of what those are. Malls are interesting. I continue to call for the change of what a mall should be. I think the old malls are to a large extent in my mind dead. And the reason is, is because you can get better stuff and better service online than you can to go to the mall. We got to remember in my mind what the mall was when we grew up. And when I grew up, the mall was the place you went to to hang out. It's almost like the town center. Yep. 
And people hung out there. They ate there. Their parents, they left you there for a while. And it was a place to go hang out. And shopping was there, right? You, in, in the old days, and I, I will give away my age now, we actually had, you'd buy records. You'd go to the record store. You'd go to the stores that were just kind of fun. And they were there for all ages, sneakers, whatever it was. The malls have gotten away from it. I believe the malls need to change what they are or they'll be gone and something else will be in that space because the space they have is usually in good locations. I think you're seeing a lot of, of retail now connected to senior housing, right? So people are trying to figure out what to do with it because if you think about it, what do seniors do? It's a great, the mall's a great place to walk. And so you have senior housing and you have stuff around it. And so I, 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 I look, I don't think malls are dead. I think malls need to be recreated. And the people that the, the, the guys that get that right will do extremely well and the other ones will be gone. Yeah, my local mall here, uh, it's interesting. They're moving towards getting restaurants in that yeah. real estate. It seems to be exploding here that they're using the space to bring in chain restaurants. Actually, one of the malls here, I guess they bought a part of their or sold a part of their parking lot. And they put a restaurant there. So it's interesting to see what's going on with the, with the space of the mall. But I think I agree with you. It's changing. Well, but I'm going to get back to what's going on to the average person who's looking to buy real estate, that next generation house buyer. I, I think they're struggling with that pricing of homes. Although they're available, they're doing more rentals now than buying homes, which changes the whole thought process. I'm going to buy an asset. And I'm living it for so many years and selling to make a profit. They can't afford to do it anymore. Are you are you starting to see that more and more now, with the, with the economy where it stands? Well, you actually said one statement that I'll go back to, and they're making a profit, right? So when I was young, my dad had a friend, and I grew up with the American dream: is you is you is you, get, you get enough money to put the down payment down, you buy a house, and in 30 years you self amortize your your mortgage out and. It goes up in value and that's what you retire on. That was the American dream. And I think this generation is growing up with the with not the assumption that I need to buy a house because I get great tax savings and it's going to be worth more, right? Houses are great, right? You could pay rent or you could pay a mortgage. You're still paying. So some part is tax deductible, big deal at the end of the day. That shouldn't drive your decision in my mind. So when I look at it, I think that's the key today, right? Which is... Is there a reason I need to own my home? Do I have to own my home? Do I need to? Am I going to live there 20 years? Do I want to be a little more mobile? I mean, kids today travel. We laughed when we did, we look at hotels. Kids travel more today. They don't have the same dreams that we had when I was growing up. Their dream, and I, and I see my own children is, where am I going next on vacation? Where am I, what am I going to go see? Where am I going to go look? What am I going to go do? And do I want to be stuck? And a lot of us were, you know, I was house rich and cash poor. So I don't think it's a no brainer that people need to buy a house. They do need to have a roof over their head. And so with, you can rent a house, you can rent an apartment, you can rent a lot of stuff. And I think as, it, it, as the generations go, you're seeing more of that now. You're seeing the, a different decision-making process in what, where do I want to put my money and what do I want to do with my life? Right. And Steve, you mentioned the term liquidity or illiquidity earlier about real estate. And I think we've debated about this quite a bit about office and, and I'll, I'll link buying houses to offices right now and the generational divide. We'll see how it plays out. But I would say more or less the day this pandemic started, I was on a call with a 
major uh, real estate player. And I said, and I live in New York City, I do not believe office will ever, 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 and I'll stick to it, ever, ever, ever come back to what it was on March 13th, 2020. I, I, the world can't unsee what they just saw. And it may not be for everyone, but I think the younger you are in today's work world, the more you value your flexibility, your time, your liquidity, or however liquidity applies to you. And I think housing is sort of a derivative of that mentality. To your point, Steve, if I buy a house and all my money is tied up in my home, I'm illiquid potentially. So I think there is this growing trend at a younger and younger generation to have mobility, flexibility, liquidity in a literal and figurative sense. And we're seeing this play out across many types of real estate, housing, offices, um, retail, it's haves and haves nots right now. And we're still like in the early innings of how this is going to play out. And I think the key to being successful in real estate is adapting, right? It doesn't mean you have to like it, but it means you may have to adapt to it. So people in the office world were taking more and more space, and maybe now they're going to pay more for less space because people will rotate in and out. Who knows? But these are the kind of issues we're thinking about every day in office, in retail, and in, in industrial. John and Michael, I'm sure your clients have reached out to you about investing in industrial. Right? That's a space that was this somewhat commoditized product 20 years ago, big warehouses and charging a few bucks a foot in rent. And now you can't build it fast enough because all of us have more stuff and that stuff has to be shipped to us and that stored somewhere and organized, et cetera. So industrial is the, the crown gem right now of, of real estate asset classes. And then it trickles down to self-storage. Self-storage used to be a mom and pop industry, but now we all have so much stuff and we might not have as big of a house and we have to put it somewhere. So self-storage has become a more and more respected and institutional asset class. So it's interesting. It's a constant evolution in real estate of what is serving the needs of people and how are people behaving. And, and, and they've just changed a lot. And certainly in the last two years, tremendously. Hey guys, as, let me ask you a question about, about uh, portfolio design, because we always have a conversation with our families about redesigning their investment accounts or their portfolios, again, whether it's in trust or not. It's, it's really a, a conversation we have all. How much of a portfolio are you guys seeing that holds real estate? In other words, if you're going to do a percentage, had $100,000 to invest, what percentage would you, what you see it, that's allocating to, to real estate? Whatever real estate class it is, it's just, just a real estate investment. See, I don't see that. I leave that to, to, to guys who are financial advisors. My job at the end of the day is just to create, hopefully, great product with, that does what it's meant to do when we do it. And if we do that, we've done our job. Everybody has their own risk reward. I just, I, I always laugh because at the end of the day, I, I believe that the products that we that should be created in some way, at least for people in the retail world, is most people, no matter what they tell you, don't have the stomach for volatility. And so I think financial advisors, you know, the, the biggest thing that can happen to them is, is it's very hard to get a client. They don't want to lose a client and volatility costs them clients. So I think you're supposed to try to figure out ways to create 
an illiquid market with as little volatility as possible for real. As long as you're transparent, you give real pricing, et cetera. I think that's what people want. So um, that's a, that I think that's if, if I'm sitting here as a retail financial advisor or a retail client, no matter what I tell you is I look at the market now. How many more calls do you get when, when, the, when the Dow goes down 500 points? The person probably never called you in the year. Right. No one likes that. And, and by the way, I, I, I don't blame them at the end of the day. You know, people work hard for their money. And so once it's being invested, they don't have the stomach to lose it. And I, I always kid about myself. I go, whenever I get my statement, if I make a dollar, I look at my statement for about two minutes. If I lose a dollar, I'm calling my broker up and my financial <laughs> advisor up and saying, what are you doing wrong for me? You're losing my money. So yeah, I only look at it myself. And by the way, for me, I never get a call if it doesn't go down. <laughs> the only reason why I brought up the investment side is that, is that if you look at the world of an investor, and maybe I'm making this too simple, but that's me. There's only three really asset classes you can create wealth. One is stocks and other companies, real estate, and if you own your own business. Other than that, you really can't create wealth in a lot of spots. So, so I'm always challenged by what percentage does a family have to have in each one of those categories? Now, if you look at our families that we have under our management, Michael, what would you say? 30% of their asset class, maybe 40s in real estate as an asset class? I think it depends on the family, but sure. I mean, we have some families that, that you know, have way more than that in real estate, just, but typically self-managed. But yeah. yeah. But so it's an asset class that I think investors have to pay attention to. And, and I'll end with this. I, I think it's a, it's a part of a portfolio they've got to look at, they have to investigate, and obviously work with professionals that know what they're doing. It's very hard to figure that out, as you pointed out, Steve, before, to, all by yourself. There's too many factors involved. But real estate is an asset class that I truly believe should be in every portfolio, whether it's a, a REIT, and we'll talk about in our next session, whether it's a REIT or it's a, any kind of a retail property or wholesale or a, a manufacturing outlet, whatever it is, it's an asset class that you have to have in your portfolio. And, so, and, and maybe even for two reasons, right? You start the session and maybe we're coming towards an end and I'll end it that way. But are you using real estate for income or are you looking for real estate for total return? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. That's a decision that has to be made by the investor. And you're right. Both sides are important. It's, it's what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? Correct. Hey, hey guys, this is great. I, I really appreciate your time today. And I can't wait till our next session to get more specific into different structures as we talked about today, whether it's a retail sectors or, or REITs or anything at that level. So uh, again, I want to thank you for your time today. Michael, do you have any th other questions or thoughts? No, I'd yes. echo that. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for your time. I thought it was really enlightening. I'm pretty confident our, our listeners would feel the same way. And uh, yes, really Really looking forward to part two. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to echo what Michael said at the beginning. There is a very specific reason you two were brought on the show. <laughs> you guys have a wealth of information. So thank you so much for sharing that with myself and the audience. And of course, John and Michael, thank you so much for bringing them on the show. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. American Portfolios and Copper Beach Financial Group are unaffiliated companies and are not affiliated with any other named businesses.